This program is made possible by members and donors, so huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the much-maligned, rarely understood feel of economic and social study known as Marxism. Clips today come from Economic Update, Analysis, Left Out, Revolutionary Left Radio, and David Harvey's Anti-Capitalist Chronicles. Before I start, I have to acknowledge what I'm sure you all know, that words like Marx and Marxism, socialism, communism, and all that have been scare words for an awful lot of us for many years. The Cold War that erupted after 1945, and pretty much the whole time since, has been a time when words like that were associated with scary, other countries, scary dangers to various aspects of the way we live, and so they inspired a mixture of fear and anxiety. And the way that worked out for an awful lot of Americans, and indeed people elsewhere too, was a decision not to pay any attention to the work of Karl Marx, not to read it, not to think about it, and unfortunately that meant we didn't learn from it. So let me begin by explaining briefly what it is we can learn. Karl Marx was a critic of capitalism. He didn't like the system, and he basically thought that the human race could and should do better. And so he spent his adult life explaining and analyzing for all the rest of us what it was that he found inadequate about capitalism, where exactly he thought we could and should do better, and to present that as clearly and persuasively as I think he knew how. Why should we pay attention to the critic? And well, the answer is simple. Critics have their perspective. It's different from the perspective of people who like something. And the way an intelligent person goes about dealing with a difficult topic is to interrogate and to investigate what the people believe who like it, but also what the people believe who don't like it, and then we draw our own conclusions. It's a little bit like wanting to understand the family that lives up the road, mama, papa, and the two kids that they have. Even though we know one kid thinks it's the greatest family there ever was, and the other one thinks it's a basket case of psychological dysfunction, if we're going to study the family, we wouldn't choose to talk to one child, neither the one or the other. What we would do, if we were honest, would be to talk to both children, hear what they have to say, ask questions, and then draw our own conclusions about that family, making the best judgment we can. Well, likewise, so it is with capitalism. We study in this country of the United States, but in other countries too, we have plenty of folks who help us study what's good about it, what they like about it, what's positive. But a well-rounded understanding, an honest engagement with the system we live in would require us to look at critics as well. And for the last 200 years, the leading critic has been Karl Marx more than any other person. 
He's as important on the side of criticizing capitalism as folks like Adam Smith and Ricardo and John Maynard Keynes are on the side of those who think capitalism really is the best thing since sliced bread. So let's jump right in. What motivated Karl Marx as a young man growing up in the middle of the 19th century as he did? Well, the answer is the goals of the French and American revolutions. He said so many times. He loved the slogan of the French Revolution, liberty, equality, fraternity, brotherhood. He loved the idea of the American Revolution, democracy. And he wanted those things to be realized in modern society, in the middle of the 19th century Europe, where he grew up and lived his life. But he lived at a time when he was becoming doubtful of a basic idea that had grown up since the French and American revolutions. And this idea was that we would get rid of the old systems of slavery and feudalism, masters and slaves and lords and serfs was now behind us. We would have a new world, a capitalist world, where the two players were employers and employees, no longer unfree slaves, no longer unfree serfs. And by having capitalism replace feudalism and slavery, we would usher in a world of liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy. Well, Karl Marx, coming 50 to 100 years later, says, well, we got the capitalism, all right, but the promise that capitalism would mean and would deliver liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy, well, it has not happened. Karl Marx looked around the Europe of his time in the middle of the century, and what he saw is pretty much what was written down, for example, in the novels of Charles Dickens. He saw an enormous gap between a relatively small part of the population that was well-off, well-educated, literate, and comfortable. And on the other, a mass of workers in the industries and the factories who were none of those things, who were poor, who were uneducated, who were illiterate, and who were suffering. And he felt the betrayal. It's not too strong a word. Capitalism had betrayed, in his view, the promise that had led so many people that he admired to support the end of feudalism and the end of slavery and the welcome they all offered to a capitalism because it promised liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy. And so he set himself a goal. What happened was the great question for him. Why did capitalism not bring the promise? Why had it failed to do that? And the research he undertook, which he then wrote up, is what we have now as a criticism of capitalism. Because what he basically discovered and wrote about was that capitalism not only wasn't the vehicle for bringing to be into being liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy, it was in fact an obstacle 
to realizing those lofty goals which Marx never stopped saluting and making his goals as well. How big an influence on the average labor person is Marx still, do you think? You know, that exaggerated sense that the Labour Party is full of Marxists and communists in disguise uh, has long been there in the famous Zinoviev letter and back in the 1920s, you know, where the, the papers accused Labour of being in hock to the Soviet Union. You know, there's a strong sense, I think, that Labour's critics will always cry Marx and cry communism. And that is undeniably misplaced, that, that sense that there's a sort of deep-seated Marxist understanding in the Labour Party is not true now, and it never has been true. There's a famous historical fact. You probably know that the very first cohort of Labour MPs were asked to talk about their influences when they became Labour MPs right back at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, And they chose people like William Morris or John Ruskin, uh, even Jesus Christ, not Karl Marx. Perhaps Labour's opponents do exaggerate the overt influence of Marx on the party, but Marx's thought may have had a much more subtle input and perhaps left a deeper imprint, for instance, on the last Labour leader, whose childhood was exposed to Marxism from an early age. I dreamed I saw Joey last night, alive as Paul Robeson, singer and civil rights activist with the Ballad of Joe Hill, an anthem of the labour movement in the US. It was one of the desert island disc choices of Ed Miliband, who said it reminded him of his dad, the Marxist academic Ralph Miliband. I have this image of this very political household with you all sitting around the kitchen table discussing animatedly politics, left-wing or otherwise. Is that about right? Yes. <laughs> it wasn't the only thing. But uh, Devlin obviously went into politics partly because our parents sort of welcomed us into that conversation and didn't push us out. But it wasn't sort of das Kapital over the breakfast table. You know, I used to sneak off and watch Dallas on the telly, much to my dad's disapproval. Personally, I think that what Ed inherited on, and David inherited presumably as well, and was a really strong sense that activity was sort of vital in our political and social world, that you, what you couldn't do is kind of sit back and take the status quo, you know, and just say that that's the way things are going to be. Mark Steers is a close friend of Ed Miliband and was his chief speechwriter for the 2015 general election. In a way, that's what they got from their Marxist background. What kind of strong sense that the way things are isn't the way things that have to be. And that's a big sort of contribution of the Marxist tradition. Marx had this notion that we move through epochal moments, you know, big moments of change. That sense that things can be wildly different than they are now and that we can learn to see the world in different ways and we have a sort of obligation to act to bring that new world about. That, I think, is kind of deeply ingrained in a whole generation of political thinkers, political activists, and I certainly think the Miliband family are are, a part of that story. Free market capitalism has ridden out the crises that periodically blight the world, and those countries that label themselves communist, 
like the Soviet Union, have proved poor adverts for Marx's economic theories. Given the catastrophic failure of those systems, why does anyone still keep the faith? I think if you ask any ordinary nurse, social worker, teacher, do you think things could be organised better? They'll turn around and say, we could do it better ourselves. No question. Any aspect of our society, the people who do the work will have a million different ideas about how much better it could be done. The problem in capitalism is we are alienated, and Marx put this so beautifully in some of his writing, alienated from our labour, from something that's intrinsic to humans, that we want to work on the world, that we can change the world, that we can shape the world. It's turned into something that is just this something to be bought and sold, which means often that people don't even have a stake in the work they do. Yes, we're tough, but enough is enough, can you feel it in the I think the view that capitalism one day will be over is becoming more mainstream. And the reason is not because Marx wrote that, although after 2008 with Lehman Brothers, there was a big upsurge in interest in Marx. The reason is because the elite of modern society have identified present-day capitalism, the so-called neoliberal free market model, as the eternal and perfect form of capitalism forever. They cannot imagine it mutating beyond the world of Goldman Sachs and privatised healthcare and globalised trade, globalised finance. They can't imagine it. They think it's the most perfect form of society ever. And therefore, weirdly, opposition movements that haven't studied Marx have kind of intuited, if that's the best capitalism we're ever going to have, it's likely we're going to get rid of it. The world today is more as Marx described it in his day than it was when he was alive. Look what's happening to ordinary people in Greece, for instance. Ordinary people are being told, you've got to pay the price for the system to recover. And the system has become more concentrated and centralised. There's more people having to sell their labour power every day. But every time the system goes into crisis, the great and the good at the top of the society tell ordinary people, you've got to knuckle down, tighten your belts, etc., because we have to get the system back. But it's as if the only way that the world can go on is if capitalism continues. a two-part question here what, what was it that first drew you to the works to the works of Karl Marx and then uh, secondly if you could reflect kind of give us a short history lesson um, from your perspective based on the kind of deep knowledge you've you've now built about his writings of what is it about Karl Marx's work that has allowed it to spread across the globe different people cultures and societies and still stay relevant um, even today yeah I uh, was a geographer, but uh, I was a geographer who was interested in urbanization. And uh, I came to the United States in 1969 in the wake of uh, urban uprisings uh, across the Americas, uh, inner cities. Uh, I came to Baltimore about a year after. Much of the city had burned down mm. after the assassination of Martin Luther King. Mm. And uh, I got into studying all of that and, in fact, became involved in some of the projects which were set up uh, the university that I was at to try to study housing questions. And uh, I was looking at this and I was kind of familiar with social science and uh, economics and sociology and 
all the rest of it as well as with urban geography and and it didn't seem to me that the sort of theoretical frameworks that I was encountering were adequate to really deal with the dynamics of what I was looking at Uh, and I was looking around for something more revealing about what was going on, not only about housing in Baltimore, but also the Vietnam War and and the civil right, what was going on in the civil rights movement, all those sorts of things. And so I suggested to some graduate students that we might want to read Marx. And so we sat down and read Marx and uh, spent a year on it. And at the end of the year, one thing we did decide was we hadn't understood a word of what we'd been reading, so I decided to do it again. But I also at that time was writing reports about the Baltimore housing question. And I, I was trying to think of a framework for it, and uh, I decided to use uh, the distinction between use value and exchange value of housing and to try to build an analysis of what went wrong in the delivery of use values to people who didn't have strong incomes through an exchange value system. So I used this use value, exchange value dichotomy that, uh, of course, is on the first few pages of Marx. Um, what was a stunning experience was that this report was uh, sent to you know, the bankers and the financiers in the city. It was sent to the city officials. It was sent to people from the federal uh, Fannie Mae. And, and, and we had a collective discussion of this report. And everybody said, this is a fantastically interesting way to look at the housing question, the use value and exchange value. And I thought, you know... There's something so elemental and obvious about some of Marx's characteristics when you, you know, categories when you strip them away. And I thought, well, you know, if, if everybody in the room there coming from different perspectives could say, hey, this is a really interesting way to look at things, uh, they were seeing something about the reality of what it was that Marx was talking about. And so I jokingly say, so I went from page one of Capital to page two and uh, went on from there. And actually, there are lots of wonderful uh, things you get from Marx, uh, which are really, uh, and Engels. Uh, I mean, Engels has this wonderful line about the, the you know, bourgeoisie only has one way to solve its housing problem. It moves them around. Yeah. And I use that sometimes, and people were kind of saying, God, that's a really fascinating point. And I not only use it about housing, I say, you know, the problem of pollution is mm. that there's no solution to the pollution problem. You either chuck it in the air or put it in the water or put it on the land. Right. <laughs> you, know, you just move it. Or, or you, you know, move it. pressurize it into rock move, now. Move with it, yeah, move it, you move it around. Yeah. And and so so all these insights were coming from reading Marx, and so I I that led me to want to understand it much better, and I did what I've always done, which is uh, if I don't understand something, I teach it, because teaching something mm. is a really mm. really good way to understand something, and so I started teaching Marx, and so I then taught it every year. Sometimes I taught it three times a year. So, so was uh, the first time you taught it, you were still at John? Yeah, John I was at John Hopkins. Hopkins. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and I taught it every year. Uh, and like I say, and I would, I teach it in the community. I would teach it out in uh, a political action center. And, uh, I even tried to teach some of it in, uh, in the Maryland penitentiary, mm, which was, a, which was a very interesting experience because uh-huh. people looked at me like I was crazy because, <laughs> because they kind of said, you know, what you're telling us is, is obvious. 
know, why, why are you coming here and telling us that? You know, we know that. And, uh, and it was kind of funny because I contrast this with trying to get Johns Hopkins students who come from elite backgrounds to understand it. It would take me a whole semester battering away, battering mm. away, battering away to get them to accept anything of what Marx was saying. But in the Maryland Penitentiary, in five minutes, everybody said, yeah, yeah well, of course. <laughs> of course. And how about the people in the, the, the room with the bankers and real estate development? Do they have any clue that you were using the not, first two pages of, of capital? <laughs> not, 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 a, not, not at that moment. Uh, Later on, uh, they started to red bait me at a later point with mm. when I was using some of these categories. I mean, particularly the one about moving the problem around. They and and on that occasion, it was very interesting. I was really attacked by some of the local politici- politicians who mm. were kind of obviously were concerned about my politics. But the the vice chairman of the uh, New York branch of the Chase Manhattan Bank for real estate was there and he said this is a fantastic insight he said I don't know why you're all kind of complaining about it so he said to me where did you get it from and I said I, I, I said well you know I thought I'd tell him I said well it actually comes from Engels and he says oh does he work at the Brookings Institution <laughs> it was so funny and, oh. and, but the, the point is that you really you know you, you, to me, all the way through, uh, I read Marx not because I'm interested in the pure theory or anything of that kind, or even I'm not really very excited about all the studies uh, about you know his historical rootedness mm. of his thinking in Hegel and you know, Greek philosophy and all the rest of it. I've always what I'm really looking for all the time are those sort of zingers that little come gems. from the yeah, little sure. gems that just suddenly give you a tremendous insight into what's going on on the ground around you. Yeah. And I think to some degree that my interpretation of Marx has been very much affected by that. Right. So that uh, probably people uh, in reading it can, I, I hope, get a better sense of what its connectivity might be to things going on in society around them. This show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you who've signed up to support the show on Patreon. Each hour-long episode we produce is the result of literally dozens of hours of work. Usually about 30 hours of source material has to be listened to, sifted, curated. I go through multiple rounds of editing and refining of the content before almost all of it is discarded and the final selection is made to produce the show. In short, A lot of effort goes into the production of the show because we care deeply about not just providing good ideas and getting them out into the world, but in finding the best versions of the best ideas we possibly can. Due to this high workload, we end up with a relatively low turnout of the show. You know, we only put out two episodes a week, which means we have less than half the opportunity to bring in ad revenue than if we were doing a live-to-tape, five-days-a-week show. And that's why direct support is so important. So if you get value out of the show and you want to support the work that makes it possible, the most important thing you can do is become a member on Patreon. Members get to listen to an ad-free version of the show, participate each week in a poll that helps decide which topics we're going to cover, and they receive bonus clips and commentary in separate members-only episodes. You can sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash bestofleft. And thanks so much for your support.
So in your article, you also argued that, quote, accepting that Marxism is scientific does not, by the very condition of science, mean that we are unable to criticize the erroneous positions of Marx, Engels, and other theorists within this terrain. In fact, according to the very concept, the opposite is the case. A science stands above and beyond its theoretical contributors. I think this is a certain, uh, I think this is a very important point here. So can you give us some examples of how Marxism as a science results in rejecting specific claims made by other Marxists, including Marx himself? Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at like some of the claims that were made by Marx uh, about India earlier on and, and the way that, you know, colonialism would pave the way for a bourgeois revolution and things like that, you always see that the Indian Marxist, well, you know, Indian Maoist movement, I think there are things about the, the revisionist Indian movement that actually might follow and agree with that a little bit. But the Indian Maoist movement uh, rejects that notion. Uh, certain ideas about like, uh, you know, having this kind of developed proletarian first and things like that, that you find in in kind of a, a certain way of reading Marx is rejected by a lot of the third, by, you know, every meaningful third world Marxist movement. Uh, and I think there's like other things again, like there's, there's some I mean, great, great texts that like, you know, uh, Marxist texts that criticize um, the things that were wrong uh, because of Eurocentrism and has worked to correct them by using that method of historical materialism. So, I mean, if you, if you think back to like, so there's a you know, great book that's, you know, I, I think I mentioned in the essay, but I mentioned a lot of time is, is Robert Beale's Eurocentrism in the Communist Movement, where a lot of that book is just going and saying, here's how Eurocentrism comes in, here's how it's been critiqued, and here's how we can critique it further using historical materialism. And, you know, the theory itself explains why this happens. Because people are going to be limited by their histo history and society, right? Yep. Social being determines social consciousness. And this idea that we're always going to be able to answer the questions that our historical social context provides us, right? We can't think always beyond that. We don't have the facts, so we're going to be stuck um, with the dominant ideology. And as much as we can, like, push through that using the method, there's always going to be something in every moment that's going to hold us back ideologically. And, you know, Marx was quite aware of this. And one of the things, you know, in, in Marx's time that's, that's I find quite interesting is that, you know, he embarked at the end of his life also on a project of like world history that a lot of that has not been translated. And you can see, not that he gets everything right, but people who work on it talk about how, um, his views of things change over time in terms of world history because he starts studying more and he's able to critique and throw out old ideas. Not that he ever fully gets them right because of the limitations of that period of time. We see that in Engel's work and, you know, the stuff on the family and the state. Um, some of the things he says about, you know, indigenous culture in North America is just dead wrong. But what was his, what, where was he getting that information? He was getting it from like colonial historiographers. Those are the only people producing the stuff that he could read at that time. It's not like he was there having access to like the, the, you know, the, 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 the colonized populations. Um, but now we know that we kind of have access to that and that allows us to challenge those theories as well. Yeah. 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 Our, our subjectivity is, is historically uh, confined. And so, you know, Marx and Engels could only see a certain distance in front of them in the thick fog of their own epoch. And, but the, the historical material is the science of historical materialism allows for Marxist, you know, after Marx and Engels, to update or expand or criticize Marx and Engels themselves. And I think that is really what makes Marxism unique among, you know, theoretical tendencies, especially on the left that have a lot of claims about how the world is or, or what the right path is. But 
there really is this internal mechanism inside Marxism that doesn't really exist in other tendencies to constantly be updating it and, and even disproving earlier Marxists themselves. And the other thing I would say is I kind of, I like using Darwin as a, as an analogy here, not only because, I mean, because Darwin was such a huge force at the time and in uh, socialism, utopian, scientific angles talks about how, you know, Marx and Engels saw themselves as doing with history and society what Darwin did uh, for biology. But Darwin as you mentioned in your essay, had racist views, wasn't right about everything, couldn't possibly have been right about everything because of the later development of genetics, um, which, you know, expanded on his theories, etc. So Darwin sets forth this idea, and then the, the Darwinian tradition then quickly supersedes and transcends the limitations of Darwin himself. And I think in the same exact way, that's how Marxism operates. Now, this uh, thesis of the erosion of the autonomy uh, of uh, the worker is, of course, one which is well documented in the history of uh, capital. But I'm led to think about uh, the changing autonomy of the consumer. How autonomous are we in terms of our consumer choices? In what degree have we all actually become appendages of the capitalist production machine? Or, uh, and and uh, in effect, you could rewrite Marx's chapter about the machine uh, to, to talk about contemporary consumerism. Now, this came to me in a big way the other day when, for the first time, I walked around uh, this new area in New York City called Hudson Yards, which is the biggest real estate development, you know, in, I guess in the USA, perhaps even, uh, in the world, though, frankly, I don't, I don't, I don't think it goes beyond what's going on in China uh, at all. But the incredible thing about Hudson Yards is that you enter into it and there's a shopping mall. And you kind of say, well, why does New York need another shopping mall? The thing about the shopping mall is it's, built with beautiful materials, large areas in which through which you can walk. But there's no space to sit down unless you go into one of the coffee bars, restaurants, or whatever. Um, and it's, it's a very barren kind of environment. Beautiful in its own way, architecturally beautiful, but at the same time, kind of empty. And then you then say, well, how, how did this, this, this monstrosity of Hudson Yards get built? And it's interesting that uh, since its virtual completion in the last month, the, week, the, the commentary on it has not been very, very positive at all. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, mainstream art critics and architects and so on have been very, very critical of the, of the whole uh, thing. It represents uh, the expenditure of a vast amount of money uh, and resources in terms of uh, the glass and, you know, and the, the, the marble and, and, and all the rest of it all to make a space uh, which is uh, 
you know, frankly, not very inviting to be in. And I think most people feel that. So there are talk now of, well, we have to get more greenery in it. We've got to do more gardening. We've got to make it more sort of user-friendly. And they just opened a public space called The Shed, which is supposed to be a, a space of spectacle. But again, it becomes transparently obvious that the role of The Shed is to create uh, as many spectacles as possible so that people come into the space and then afterwards will wander into the mall and maybe buy you know eat something or or buy something in 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 the mall so in a sense it's a it's all about the manipulation of one's needs and desires it's all about uh building something in the image of capital and this was how marx talked about the factory system he said the factory system was not built to, to lighten the load of labor. And in fact, he starts off the chapter on machinery by commenting on how is it that John Stuart Mill could not understand why it was that machinery which should lighten the load of labor actually ended up making it, you know, the labor process more and more oppressive. Well, we can say the same thing about something like Hudson Yards. Here, here, here is a situation in which capital is building something which to a casual observer should be about improving the qualities of life of the population and, and you know and, and at the same time all it really does is to actually present a symbolic presentation of the nature of what capital is about it's a it's a symbolic intervention not a real intervention of course there are some people who are going to live there. But when you ask about housing prices, it's certainly not anything about affordable housing. Uh, and uh, most of the housing is, you know, very high quality for, you know, the, the again, the top, top 1% or the top 10%. And you then say to yourself, well, what would have happened if all of the resources that went into building this place had been actually put into the creation of affordable housing. What kind of city would we be living in? Furthermore, what would have happened had this gargantuan effort uh, been oriented to creating the possibility of consumer choice in terms of, for instance, ways of life, uh, ways of being, and it'll be interesting to see if the site gets occupied by people and, quote, civilized by actually turning it into a, a, a place in which something which is vibrant can go on, For like, like Washington Square, for example, which is a, a public space where when the sun comes out, uh, the three bands appear and all kinds of you know, people on skateboards and all sorts of things. So, you know, people playing cards and whatever, you know, and the, the, uh, the chess players in the corner. I mean, there's a, there's a whole kind of life there. And it'll be interesting to see if anything like that transpires, uh, within the space. Now, because this can happen. Uh, I always think in Paris, for example, the Pompidou Center, which is the art center, which is a rather, you know, in itself, 
It's not a bad building, but it has a forecourt, which is the most forbidding and boring piece of architecture you can possibly imagine. But somehow or other, people get into it and turn it into a space uh, which is actually lively and actually... Uh, but that is going to also depend on the authorities tolerating certain degrees of freedom within the public spaces that there are there, such that uh, they are freely can be freely appropriated by different people doing different things, in which case the space might actually become you know, a little bit interesting and a little bit livable. In other words, they built a space in the hope that somebody comes. Uh, I hope that somebody will come, the somebody that will come will actually civilize it and turn it into something which is very, very, uh, very, very different. But this, in, in, in effect, takes me back also to this whole kind of question uh, about the nature of daily life under capital. Marx had held that free time is one of the big indicators of an adequate society. Uh, Marx indicated that what we should be looking at is what he called uh, the, the realm of the realm of freedom, and that realm of freedom, he said, begins when the realm of necessity is left behind. So, a good society is one where realm of necessity is covered. Everybody has enough food and enough, you know, uh, clothing and enough housing and enough uh, employment, if if need be, uh, to lead an adequate life. And then after that, everything is free time and people do what they like in whatever spaces that they like. In other words, what we're looking at here is the idea that there's going to be some sort of autonomy of how people use their time, how people consume their time. And that autonomy, it seems to me, is being steadily eroded by the invasion of capital, of everyday life, taking away the autonomy uh, of time and certainly making it impossible for large segments of the population uh, to leave behind the realm of necessity. In fact, the large, largest segment of the population is struggling hard uh, to try to meet certain realms of necessity, which means that they are a very restricted capacity uh, for freedom of, of uh, expression. Cities at their best are cities where there is a great deal of social autonomy, of social groups to do what they want, how they want to do it. But we, we again and again see the technologies and the capacities for those kinds of autonomies being eroded and taken away, removed. And this to me is again one of the sad parts of contemporary life. Before I jump into it, I want to make sure I'm clear here. Marx never wrote a word, and certainly not an extended examination, of what a future society might look like, what a post-capitalism might look like. He didn't believe in that kind of future gazing. He didn't think it was serious. He didn't think anybody could know how the world was going to evolve in the future. So he pointed a 
only in the gestural sense. That is, he gave some ideas of what might have to happen if we were going to get beyond capitalism. But he didn't offer blueprints. He didn't offer complete images of what such a society would look like. As I say, he didn't believe in that being a useful uh, exercise. And in particular, Marx never suggested, contrary to what so many have said, that the state, the government, had to play some sort of central role in what this future post-capitalism would look like. Later, Marxists interpreted him to have suggested that, but it's hard to find in Marx any idea like that. Never wrote a book about the state, never wrote an article about the state, just didn't do it because it wasn't the center of his view. And I say that to challenge those of you who may still believe that there's something intrinsically statist or focused on the state in what Karl Marx did. So then what is Marx's basic idea? Well, in a sense, the three segments we've already exposed in this program answer that question. For Marx, the key thing is the relationship between people, among people, in production. The relationship of master-slave, lord-serf, employer-employee. In each one of those, a minority of people make all the key production decisions. Masters, lords, employers. They decide what gets produced, how it gets produced, where it gets produced, and what is done with the surplus from those workers who produce the surplus. So for Marx, if you want liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy, the place it has to begin is in production, in the enterprise, in the place where work gets done. The office, the factory, the store, the home, wherever work gets done. And his idea is simple. No more dichotomy between a few at the top who make the decisions and everybody else. No more the mass of people produces surplus that flows into the hands of a small minority. That's got to stop. In its place, Marx advocates, points toward, a different economic system, one in which the workplace becomes fundamentally egalitarian and democratic. What does that mean? It means that the decisions of the workplace, what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the surplus, is made by everyone together. One person, one vote, a democratic decision-making life at the job for all adults. After all, that's where most adults spend most of their adult lives, at work. If you believe in democracy, Marx would have said, well, then it has to start where you spend most of your time, which is at work. So what is the solution? He says, a transformation of the workplace from the top-down, dichotomized, hierarchical employer at the top, mass of employees at the bottom, transform that into a democratic institution where everyone has an equal say on what is happening at work. 
Now, let me point out to you that what Marx is advocating for the economy is precisely what, for example, Americans and many Europeans and others in the world advocate for their political life. After all, we got rid of kings and czars and emperors and all of that on the grounds that that was a tiny group of people making decisions for all of us. In the United States, we made a revolution against George III in England because he said he could control what happened here. And we said, no, we want to control. And how do we want to do it? One person, one vote in a democratic system. Took a long time to make all persons get this right, but you could see where we were going from the beginning. The democratization of politics has been a mantra, has been a slogan, has been a goal for a long time. Marx asks the question, why only the democratization of politics? Why not the democratization of the economy? The same logic would apply. And I would go even further, having learned this from Marx. I don't believe you can have a genuine political democracy unless it is grounded on an economic democracy. If you allow capitalism to make a few people rich and the mass of people not, you can bet your bottom dollar that the few rich will use their wealth to corrupt the political system to destroy the democratic reality of it and make it a contest between billionaires buying maximum time on TV to get the votes. You don't need me to explain that to you. You're living it every day. So Marx's argument is change the economy. Now let me tell you what this implies, because it may not be immediately obvious. One of the implications of Marx's gesturing towards a different way of organizing the workplace, a democratic way, one of the arguments that flows out of it is that it will never be enough for the state to replace private entrepreneurs or private employers. If all the state does is get rid of the private people who are the employers and replace them with government officials who are the employers, we haven't gotten rid of the employer versus employee division. We have then what Marx would have called state capitalism rather than private capitalism. But it's all capitalism, which means it will operate in a similar way. Therefore, what the Soviet Union did, what China did, what Cuba did, whatever the pros and cons of replacing private capitalism with state capitalism might be, going beyond capitalism, they did not achieve. Because that requires, if you're going to be taking the lesson from Marx, transforming the workplace so it isn't an employer employee relationship. That has to be understood because it's the logical outgrowth of everything Marx tried to understand and to achieve. Is the question of realizing Marx's dream, Marx's solution, 
Marx's idea of how to actually get, excuse me, to liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy, is that just a utopian dream? My answer is not at all. Marx was aware, as we are now, that human beings have understood this more or less for thousands of years. Yes, Marx is the formal statement of it. He's worked it out a bit further. He's a modern, relatively modern exponent of this idea, but the idea itself is very old. One of the ways it's been embodied is in something we call worker co-ops, where workers cooperatively run a business. That's as old as Methuselah. Early American history is full of examples of worker co-ops. Workers in farms, in stores, in little craft enterprises, getting together as groups of people, democratically, an egalitarian way. Everybody gets the same wage or roughly the same. Everybody has one vote in deciding everything the business does. There are examples all over the United States today. Spain has a famous example in the Mondragon Corporation. Emilia-Romagna in Italy is a place where roughly 40% of businesses are run as worker co-ops, etc., etc. So yes, Marx makes a breakthrough. Marx teaches it in a systematic, theoretically sophisticated way. But he is recouping for us the history of many efforts over many years in virtually all cultures to move in that direction, to see that as the way to realize the goals for a just economic system. What's the conclusion one can draw from all of this? Marx was a critic. Marx said that capitalism is not the end of human history. It's just the latest phase. Marx reminds us, and he does it with a grin, that the proponents and the celebrants of capitalism have often made the same mistake as the proponents and celebrants of slavery and feudalism before them. They imagined with wishful thinking that their system was the end of history, that their system was the go as good as it gets, that you couldn't do better than what they had done. Every single one of those people over the last 5,000 years, if not longer, of recorded history has been proven wrong. That means that the people who tell you today that we can't do better than capitalism, that capitalism is the greatest thing since sliced bread, it's the end of history, it's the ultimate, there's no more reason to believe that sort of argument today than there is reason to do anything but smile at the people who believe that about feudalism, slavery, and everything else. It's really the point of view of people who are either afraid of or dead set against progressive social change. And that's not Marx. That's what he was about. And he felt that the capitalist system had demonstrated enough for him by the 1850s to know that we can, we need to, we must do better. 
And as one who has learned from Marx, as I have learned from all kinds of other thinkers, I have to say that the last 150 years since he left the scene has not made many of us one whit less impressed by how much he understood what insights he had to offer. And as an American, which I am, and I'm glad I am, I am profoundly grateful on the one hand that I can explain all of this and I can say it to you. But my pride in being able to do that is coupled with a shame that for the last 70 years, it has been, in the main, almost impossible in this society to get people to understand the simple truth that you have to listen and pay attention to the critic as well as to those who love the system if you're ever going to get a balanced understanding of the sort you need to do better. We've just heard clips today, starting with Richard Wolff on Economic Update, laying out the premise of why it's important to criticize capitalism, or anything else for that matter, in order to better understand it. Analysis looked questioningly at why people today are still so supportive of a theory that many think was disproven long ago. Left Out talked with David Harvey about his experiences teaching and, in turn, learning about Marx. Revolutionary Left Radio discussed the concept of Marxism not as an adherence to original texts, but as a self-critical evolving science. David Harvey on the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles used the newly built Hudson Yards in New York as an example of what happens when you build for the sake of capitalism rather than for the sake of people. And finally, we just heard Richard Wolff explaining that, contrary to popular belief, Marxism has nothing to do with the type of state-run socialism that we became familiar with in the Soviet Union, and his fundamental idea about breaking the pattern of a few with power, whether as masters, lords, or employers, and the many without, whether they be slave, serf, or employee. Today's members will be hearing a bit more on this topic, including a story from Richard Wolff about his early days becoming interested in Marxism and how he found Marxists like himself to be just as critical as anyone else at what was happening then in the Soviet Union and how he's never wanted anything to do with that form of state-run socialism. In a moment, we're going to hear from you, uh, but first, a bit of context for this first call. You're going to hear our friend David Olympia. He's, he's behind on the show, so he's been catching up on conversations that were had like weeks ago. But in this one, he connects a topic from early April, where he's listening right now, to today's topic, just by coincidence. So back on April 5th, Ryan from Chicago called in to talk about identity politics and presidential candidates and said this. There's a cohort of Americans who have a political ethos that you can basically boil down to wanting in on the con. People who are fine with our barbaric system as long as, you know, it's evenly distributed. And then after the voicemails and my final comments, I responded to that and added to it. So I'm just going to play a couple of minutes of what I had to say following up on all of that. So women 
who say they like being catcalled is a good example of someone who would betray their womanhood for the sake of sort of power, maybe like social uh, capital. You know, so someone says like, hey, I don't even know why women are complaining about being street harassed. Like, I take it as a compliment. It's a it's a self-esteem boost for me because I'm hollow inside. You know, at the very least, someone like that gets social capital with men for saying something like that. But if you were to say that on television, well, then you're going to get paid too. Or uh, women who take the side of neoliberalism over working mothers. They'll say like, you know, well, of course they deserve to be paid less. They took time off to make a human. Personally, I get ahead in my job by not even taking any of the vacation time that my company offers. So my career is going gangbusters because I have no personal life and I'm hollow inside. So again, in this situation, you know, a woman saying that is selling out the the demand for equality that other women are calling for in exchange for power comes in the form of better career advancement and more money. It comes with some social power that comes with that money or, or comes with the people you work with, often a lot of men at, at higher levels. And so getting in good with that gets you not just financial incentives, but social power as well. And then on the other side, you know, you get people of color who will argue that, you know, the oppression of black people, uh, the, the oppression they experience is really just the result of personal failings. It's not really systemic. It, it's really just all on them. So, you know, person, well, of course they can't get jobs. They refuse to pull their pants up, you know, but I've been gainfully employed my whole life because I always pull my pants up and I make sure to agree with all white perceptions of black people to make them comfortable enough with me to hire me. See, that's all you have to do. So basically, it's, it's anyone who is willing to go along with the established order, the established power structure. If you're willing to defend patriarchy, if you're willing to defend white supremacy, you can get power for that. I mean, if you're a white guy and you want to defend those things, like, sure, that's going to work in your benefit. But man, if you're a woman or a person of color and you're working to uphold the systems of oppression that are working directly against you, you will get rewarded. So basically, if you want to find examples of what I'm talking about, just turn on Fox News and listen to any woman or any person of color who isn't angrily disagreeing with the hosts, and you will have a perfect case study of someone who is selling out the freedoms and equality of the people they share their identity with for the sake of getting in on the con. So all of that was from early April, and now we'll hear from you. Hey, uh, it's Dave from Olympia, Washington. Holy cow. I just finished episode 162, still playing catch up, but wow. Um, oh, the caller um, <laughs> from Chicago. The, the turn of phrase getting in on the con and particularly your kind of uh, explanation, expansion at the end. What a, what a powerful framing. And holy cow, what a powerful framing for how capitalism works. You know, the desire to get in on the con to become a capitalist, you know, to have, you know, power and influence that's undeserved simply because you have power and influence because you've worked or made anything. And not even the actual 
benefits, it, it, a remuneration of actually getting in on the con, but the hope that someday you might be able to get in on the con. I, I mean, boy, what drives people to play along and acquiesce to an oppressive system like capitalism, which doesn't really work for almost anybody, but the desire to someday be on the receiving end of those, you know, of, of that unfair equilibrium. Um, desire, maybe someday I can get in on the con too. Wow. I don't think that's a necessarily new thought to almost anyone, but it's, um, I think it's a very powerful phrase and way of framing certainly folks that sell out their identity groups, but from an economic standpoint, the kind of liberal cone, right? Why do poor whites in the South vote against, quote unquote, their economic self-interest by supporting, you know, Republican candidates, by supporting uh, right to work initiatives, by supporting punishing tax uh, structures? Well, it's the desire that someday they're going to get on the con. It's the, I guess, aspiration that we're, you know, not always going to be the one getting conned. And when I finally get in on it and figure out the, you know, winning lot of number or make the right connections or whatever it is that I want the con to still be going so that I can, you know, get in on some of the goods. Anyhow, that was super exciting. That was very, very cool. As always, stay awesome. Hi, this is Heather from Texas. I just finished listening to your episode on the white power movement and white supremacy. And I just thought I would share my perspective as a white person who came from a really small Texas town. From my experience, and, and I've, I've known a lot of racist people in my life, most of them would not probably even acknowledge themselves as racist. They don't, they honestly don't think they are racist. They honestly do not see in in which ways they see the world in a very biased racial tone. And the small town I'm from, I mean, you have people in poverty, generational poverty from from all backgrounds, but most of the the black people in my small town are products of generational poverty. And so even if my white neighbors wouldn't necessarily come out and say that they thought that black people were lesser. They would view the black people as not necessarily responsible for their poverty because of, of racial issues and, and the connections that, that have been racially tied in our nation. They would see them more as um the reason that they are, are so poor is because of their collective laziness. And they kind of bolster these opinions with themselves by seeing that all these, these black families that are generationally poor, they're on food stamps, um, a lot of them are on disability, but, you know, the white people don't really see them as really having a disability. They think they're faking it, etc. And again, they do not think they're being racist. To them, they're just calling it as it is. So 
I think an important thing about acknowledging the white movement or the white power movement and the white supremacy is having white people as a whole and individually acknowledging our unconscious bias, acknowledging where we might not think that we are being racist, but digging down when we have a thought about a person based on race, figuring out where these thoughts are coming from. What are the unconscious thoughts coming behind this? Because it's going to come down to, I mean, of course, people of color have made awesome strides in promoting themselves and enhancing how we view people of color as a whole. I mean, it's changed so much and I'm so proud. But we're not going to be able to prevent this massive white power movement without white people themselves having some introspection. So um, I just thought, you know, I, I was listening to it and I acknowledge that there are people that, I mean, will proudly admit that they are racist, but again, they don't really see themselves as being racist for the sake of nothing. They think that they're, they're justified, but there are so many more who do not know that they're being racist. Anyways, thank you so much for the podcast. I appreciate you so much. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, today, I want to try to talk about this concept I've been uh, toying with recently it's it's sort of just the general debate between progressivism and conservatism but it's through the lens of the slightly more specific individualism versus communitarianism and then ties in economics as well and sort of ties into today's topic and, and so the the question that i think gets to the core of a lot of this discussion is where do we decide to draw the line as to what the individual is responsible for. Where, where does society set the floor and why? Why do we make the decision we do about where that floor should be set? Because th this debate over what individuals are, are responsible for or should be and what society is or should be responsible for, I think is pretty arbitrary. And that line moves constantly and the the debate, at least the, the sort of arguments on both sides, stay pretty well the same, even though the, the specifics change over time. So we'll start with like just wealth, just to focus for a second. We'll go with wealth to explain the concept. So wealth allows people to do more with their time and specialize in their field. So, you know, wealth could uh, just buy you food so you don't have to live on a farm and raise your own food. Or it could buy you a car, which helps get you to work faster so you can focus more on your actual job instead of having to carve out like two hours a day to walk to and from your job. So wealth can be translated in this way into more free time, which then itself gets translated into time spent on your specialization beyond survival. So we, we kind of know this concept about wealth, but there's all kinds of parts of 
our society that works basically the same way. It, it relieves us from spending time accessing water because we don't have to go to uh, a river or a well to access our free our, our, our um, fresh water anymore. And so that's a lot of time that is freed up that allows people to do something else with that time. And so society has built systems that relieve everyone of these kinds of burdens. And so the question is, what do we decide to do collectively and why? Where do we draw the line? So the argument goes that the higher you set the floor, the more things that the government just decides to take care of for people, the less people have to do just to get by, just to survive, and the more free time they would have to do literally anything else. And so people would be taking those, you know, all that additional free time that they didn't have to spend doing something else to, to gain money or to gain their survival or whatever and use it to specialize and use their skills that presumably, uh, collectively, statistically speaking, in the larger picture, is going to lead to human progress. Like, the foundation of human progress is free time. It is the time that is gained from either efficiencies or the benefits of other people's work that allows people to specialize in their field and, uh, you know, go on to do other things. So, like, to, to put this into sort of a, a frame or, or uh, to use an analogy to demonstrate, think of it like an ancient farming community. And this farming community, you know, they, they raise food, they, they depend on rainfall, but it's not quite enough, and they need more water. So there's a river nearby, um, and, and maybe some wells, but, you know, they still have to transport the water manually. And the status quo mindset in this community is, hey, like, if you want food— you have to work hard and transport water every day. There's no way around it. To grow food, you need water. To get the water, you got to transport it. Here are your buckets. Good luck. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, we can look at this scenario and see that there's a choice to be made here. They could continue to individually transport water by bucket, or they could collectively decide that they could dig irrigation trenches that would uh, bring water to everyone. And one of these choices highlights the paradigm of taking circumstances just as they are and simply working harder if you want to get ahead. And the other highlights the paradigm of working to fundamentally change our circumstances to make everything easier for everyone. And what critics of capitalism are saying is just don't get stuck in the status quo way of thinking so much and keep your mind open to the possibility of ways to improve society, structurally improve them. Otherwise, you may end up as you know the equivalent of a modern-day farmer hauling water with a bucket, never knowing what an irrigation system is and how it could relieve you of all of that work that could be spent doing something else, something more productive, or just something more to your liking, something more to your taste— and so then the second part of this line of thinking is, is that the people who actually know about alternative solutions but actively fight against them, and this is where we get more to the individualism versus communitarianism debate between conservatives and progressives. To me, 
it is not very hard to imagine the type of person who, in this analogy, would say that building an irrigation system will make people lazy. Hey, if they don't have to spend time hauling water, they're just going to sit around playing some ancient version of video games, but with smooth stones or whatever. But in fact, since societies did invent irrigation trenches and make agriculture more efficient and all of that, some people who would have otherwise been killing themselves, hauling water around, uh, went ahead and invented algebra instead. Like, that's what happens when people are relieved of unnecessary burdens and bullshit work. So there's this tension between the status quo and change, and the arguments against change fall into basically two categories. One is the system is perfectly fine just the way it is, and I know this because I'm doing particularly well in this system, and since I'm a good person and I'm doing well, well, then the system must be working properly. And the other is the system has to be this way, and if we change it, it will lead to the fall of civilization because a different system would cause people to act in horrible ways that are either immoral or just generally destructive to society. And generally, it's the people in the first group who go around convincing everyone else to put themselves in the second group, and thus the status quo marches on, benefiting only a few, but supported by the many who fear the downfall of society, and of course, dream of one day getting in on the con themselves. So the question from the beginning is, where do we draw the line as to what individuals should have to do on their own, and what should be provided to all of society so that people can go on to specialize in their own ways? We're obviously past irrigation trenches. Like, I don't mean to brag, but I actually have running water right inside my home. Now, has that access to running water my whole life made me lazy? Maybe by some standards, yes. But it's also given me the ability to spend my energy elsewhere and specialize my talents. Like, do you think this podcast would even exist if I had to go haul water from a well every day? Or better yet, do you think the computer this podcast is produced on would exist if all the engineers who built it had to haul water from wells every day? So what we have to think about is what could humanity accomplish if we raised the bar of what was provided to people? Or, or even just if wealth inequality was cut down to a reasonable level, what might people accomplish if everyone worked in worker-owned cooperatives the way Professor Richard Wolff wants, which structurally uh, benefits the working poor and, and reorganizes the way wealth is distributed? Or what if everyone received a universal basic income? You know, basically, instead of making everyone work for every single penny they have, we raise the bar a bit by reducing the amount of basic work that needs to be done in life, allowing people to use their free time in other ways that suit their own specializations. And if you reflexively argue against those kinds of proposals, like I'm open to debating the proposals of how society should be changed— but if you reflexively argue against proposals to change society because you want to keep things the way they are, then you just have to ask yourself why. Is it because you're doing very well in our current system and you don't want things to change? It would be selfish, but understandable. Or 
Is it because you think those ideas would be detrimental to society? And if that's what you think, what makes you think that? Like, what evidence do you really have? And where did that evidence or those ideas come from? Because there's a very good chance they came from someone who is doing particularly well in our current system and doesn't want it to change. If you have thoughts on this or anything else, I would love to hear it. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show, itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.